0: Hey guys, we have a new giveaway this week. Thanks to our partner Beta, we will be giving away the Luxem Weighted Blanket. Did you know that it's scientifically proven that weighted blankets can cause chemical changes in your body to help you relax and sleep better? By increasing serotonin and melatonin, the Luxon weighted blanket helps you sleep better and gives you enhanced mood. It also decreases cortisol levels, which helps to reduce stress and anxiety. We're giving away 5 of these weighted blankets this week to our listeners. All you have to do is enter the giveaway at www.mission.org/giveaway, and we will be giving away 5 of these to our lucky listeners. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Arjun Aurora and John Lowe. Arjun is founder and advisor at Valence Advisory, where he advises funds, startups, and Fortune 100 companies, including Nike, Expa, the Omidyar Network, and more. Previously, he has served as partner at 500 startups and started and sold his first company, Retargeter, which he bootstrapped and grew to the top 100 companies on Inc.'s fastest growing companies list in 2013. John Lowe is a leadership coach to Founders as an advisor at Valence Advisory. He's also an author and speaker who has ghostwritten numerous books, including a New York Times bestseller. On this episode, Chad sits down with Arjun and John to discuss their entrepreneurial journey, the culture of Silicon Valley and how it's changing faster than ever, and the ways in which Arjun and John are advising Founders and changing lives.
1: Arjun, John, thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank thanks you. For so us. Yeah. I would love to take just a, a brief moment uh, where both of you could introduce yourselves and mm-hmm. give us the uh, maybe condensed version of uh,
2: your bios. Yeah, go ahead and get started. So Arjun uh, Aurora, been uh, around the Silicon Valley ecosystem for many years, but I grew up down in Southern California. I went to school at UC Berkeley, studied electrical engineering and computer science, a technical background, uh, then went into investment banking for a few years, um, again, in technology. So kind of keeping that thread going. Um, eventually made my way to Yahoo or ended up running business development for Yahoo real estate. So early days of, you know, the online kind of real estate world, Zillow and Trulia were just getting started. Uh, from there, started my first company called Retargeter in the online advertising space, and that you know grew to some meaningful size, tens of millions in revenue. We had just under fifty people in San Francisco, customers and clients all over the world, and was a tremendous and awesome experience and learned so much. <laughs> uh, cool. We sold that company in twenty fifteen, and then kind of meandered and made my way to the venture side. Uh, eventually, became a partner at five hundred startups, where I was for a few years actively investing in early stage startups across the globe. Um, and transitioned from there at the beginning of 2018, have since been in residence uh, at Expa and supporting a handful of other funds. Um, and more recently, John and I have partnered to uh, create Valence Advisory, which is an entity that supports emerging managers, founders, uh, family offices, sovereign funds, and, and a whole bunch of uh, different you know, types of folks that are engaged in the startup ecosystem.
1: Very cool. And uh, John, we were talking a little bit earlier, but would love for you to share your background. I think some of your interests about communication uh, psychology. Let's try to dive into all that okay, it sounds great, fascinating. Great, yeah. Thank you,
3: thank you. So, uh, John Lowe here. Uh, so, I came from a technical background too. I did a degree in the commerce and engineering, and uh, uh, worked in multiple industries, consulting, management consulting, and design. Just trying to really figure out, uh, you know, figure out my life. <laughs> and um, but one th- one thread that kind of binded my life was I- I'm a third degree black belt in Taekwondo, and uh, the lineage or the school that I came from was strongly focused on. Uh, developing character and personal growth, uh, not so much stressing just the fanciness of you know being able to kick someone in the head. So uh, I've always valued um, human potential, and I've always asked myself the question, you know, what what helps someone really express that more fully? And why is it for others who clearly don't wake up in the morning with the intention to suck at anything, right? Right. Why do they? Why do others sometimes struggle to achieve the same? And what I realized is over time I uh, got in, you know, did a deep dive into how powerful communication is as a tool to change the way we behave and also affect change and influence uh, change in other people's behaviors. And really, uh, in the last decade, I've managed to really codify that. And I um and I think I mentioned this to you uh, earlier, Chad, that uh. I realized that, um, you know, the the process we use to describe our experience is actually the exact same process we use to create or recreate our experience. And so today uh, I'm very much focused on leadership coaching. I see myself more as a communications nerd, but not really in your classical sense where, you know, sure. doing internal comms or uh, writing copy, although I can do that. But what I really uh, am passionate about working uh, in is um, helping founders or emerging fund managers, general partners, people who really value personal growth and leadership and see how that has a direct impact on their performance every day is to really help them learn uh, about themselves mm-hmm. to a deeper degree to so develop that self-awareness, but also teach them like communication techniques, various verbal, non-verbal, to more effectively communicate their positive intentions for others and really align people behind a vision and really build trust and safety in the environment that so that you know people when people aren't worried about safety when safety is taken care of they can actually uh, access their intelligent center in their mind. Sure. And so they always perform better, you know. Um, and so that's where I, I come from. And uh, to Arjun's point, we've managed to codify this together in a collaboration uh, called Valence Advisory. And really, our mission is while we're working with emerging funds and working with family offices and founders. Uh, the the meta vision of this is, you know, the, the the good outcome we want is really to strengthen and reinforce trust in the ecosystem between stewards of capital and founder potential. Because I think if you get the capital right, you get the strategy right, you, you find the right founders, you can create some amazing things. But, you know, when you don't have the trinity working, like mm-hmm. you only need, it's a single point failure, basically.
1: Yeah. And without good communication or evolving communication for all parties, it's, I mean, we get Substandard results, right? There's nev- never going to be a great outcome unless we get communication right. Um, and it's an exciting time to be talking about communication and all these topics because, you know, whether you glance at the news or whether you're a student of history, it's uh, clear that humans don't know how to communicate that, <laughs> that well. Like we're still yeah, we're learning. very much a work in progress. <laughs> yeah. And um, we kind of right. need to speed this up if we're going to do anything really cool or ambitious in the future. Um, I love that. So, really well said. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you. So you two are both based in San Francisco. I'm sure you're traveling mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. Um, how do you get out to the Bay area in the first place? Everyone has a unique story of kind of like sure. how they got started here. So I would love to hear yeah. uh, about how you first came to the Bay.
2: So I, uh, yeah, I grew up in Southern California and uh, one of my dad's uncles was here kind of in the early days of kind of what we would now call, you know, the Silicon Valley revolution. And so always had that kind of in the back of my head, Um, but ended up going to school at UC Berkeley and was very fortunate to be there where got a strong kind of technical, you know, background. And then having just seen early indications, there was a program called the Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology at Cal, which was just kind of, you know, introducing students to what was going on in the entrepreneurial ecosystem very, very early. I remember Peter Thiel came and spoke and the CEO of Flextronics and a few other folks. And, you know, after graduating from Cal, there was a choice, you know, do I stay here or do I go? And I think by that point in time, it was very clear that there was something very magical and special about this place and that I was definitely going to stay. Um, and then, you know, moved into San Francisco, started working, you know, up and down the peninsula, but never left the city. And then when I started my first company, it was in San Francisco itself. So, um, there's something for me personally, that's just so deeply tied to the energy and magic of this place that, you know, I can't, can't see myself going anywhere else. So uh, that's how I got here.
1: And I I love that you use the phrase magic because that would that would sum up, you know, a lot of my experiences here. And especially yeah. if you compare them from, uh, you know, operating in any other entrepreneurial hub or any other mm-hmm. major metro center, if you compare and contrast that experience to the experience here, it's, uh, it can yeah. be magical, right? It's not totally. guaranteed to be magical, yeah. but <laughs> that's uh, part of the things that comes with magic. Like, right? no guarantees. Um, John, how'd you come out here?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, short story, um, I never really uh, grew up feeling like I quite fit in with the mainstream. Not sure. by choice. To be a rebel or to be special I just like didn't quite connect right and it was quite serendipitous how I found myself in San Francisco cuz like the first time I came here cuz I, I was born in Malaysia and I uh, grew up in Australia and but in 2009 I actually just came for a couple nights just to visit San Francisco City and I I walked around the city and had a visceral experience that I literally have lived the life here before hmm. and uh, that was 2009 And since then, I kind of followed my intuition and thread, uh, doing a lot of business, uh, flying here and internationally, and um, eventually uh, met someone who is now my girlfriend (laughs) and kind of followed my heart on that um, in the recent uh, uh, five or six years and um, really decided that this was really the place for me. Yeah, I
1: definitely have some uh, similar experiences there. And I think that's uh, an interesting segue to start talking about, you know, Maybe the uh, the moment or moments where you two notice that uh, culture might not necessarily be your friend or might not support mm-hmm. you know your overall ambitions or mm-hmm. uh, you know culture is something that's very tricky and you know I instantly connected with you over some experiences early on in elementary school and things like that where you just become aware of how different your worldview and your ideas might be from other folks mm-hmm. um, not necessarily a bad thing but it can feel stifling at times and. Uh, I would love to hear about, you know, how did you um, both kind of find your path in entrepreneurship, which is really Mm -hmm. just a rejection of traditional culture in some ways, right? Yes,
2: indeed. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think uh, for me, it's been an interesting story having grown up as, you know, first generation uh, immigrant. So my parents moved here from uh, India through uh, Germany and then Minnesota and then into California. um, You know, it always had this interesting dichotomy between two different cultures. And so that was, that brought a lot of awareness and then growing up in, uh, down in Southern California has its own unique culture, and so um, for me, I was fortunate at an early age to have an understanding that culture is not. There's, you know, monoculture isn't necessarily a thing. I just grew up knowing sure. that there are multiple cultures, and you can also have a choice around which culture you choose to adopt more or less of. Um, so that awareness for me was a very powerful thing, uh, you know, as uh, as a young kid, and and then you know got into the study of of how to surprisingly now thinking back at it at quite a young age, for whatever reason, uh, pulled into like how, you know, how does culture work? How does leadership work? How do you define a culture? How, what are things that you can do to either create super positive cultures or what are the extremes of that look like, which maybe aren't so positive. So that became a, a study uh, or an area of interest and in, in a typical kind of highly curious kid, voracious way, just read everything I could find sure. uh, on that in like, let's call it my you know, mid to late teens. So that began or kicked off a process of, you know, trying to understand some of these things that you were, you were just chatting about.
1: Very cool. Yeah. And um, what's your kind of read on wh- where the Bay Area is at right now in terms of uh, innovation? Are we uh, mm. stagnating? Or are things moving uh, more slowly or are things accelerating? And yeah. uh, what's your, your read on that?
2: I would certainly say it's accelerating. I think there's a ton of, uh, you know, just volume of activity happening and right. people are getting more and more refined in their ability to create, um, you know, more quickly. So I think we're moving from having a thought and making that into something that is tangible and that is compressing, um, you know, more and more uh, over time. And so in the past, you know, people say, oh, it take $5 million to go buy servers to, you know, install, and then you can start running, you know, basic hello world. Today you can be up and running for you know fifty bucks or whatever, sure. and get something you know up and running on Squarespace or something like that. So the world is certainly accelerating, and this being the epicenter of that is is amazing. I'm you know fortunate to do my time at 500 to go visit a lot of the other innovation uh, hubs across the world, whether it be um, you know everything from Singapore, Dubai, Paris, uh, Tokyo. So there's a lot of different places where this innovation is. You're starting to happen. Mexico City is another great place, but there is still something special about the Bay Area in its ability to move quickly and its ability to both have all of that expertise that exists here—that multiple generations of hyper growth and hyperscale—you know—coupled with a pay it forward culture of like, let's just be helpful, let's help create together, right. um, which is really at the essence of you know what what attracts me so much this place. So I think those those two things for now are keeping. The Bay Area, in my opinion, the the strongest place for for this and and that is accelerating. So, sure. you know it's here and it's happening faster, which is which is great.
1: Yeah, I think the network effects of the Bay Area are just really hard to argue with. The mm-hmm. concentration of people and even folks who don't live here full time. There are a yeah. number of folks who just come here so often that it's uh, pretty hard to beat. The uh, cost of living obviously yeah. is at the forefront of folks' mind. But um, if you try to you know figure out how to buy that same network that you might get outside the Valley
2: anywhere else. I don't yeah. see how you would do it Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a very, very, very expensive. And the other challenge is that people won't even open it up unless you're in the ecosystem. They're not going to engage with you because yeah, if def- you're not values aligned, definitely you know, there's no point. It's no amount of money you will know, we'll, we'll change that for certain people. And yeah. I think that's important. But And, and that brings
1: yeah. up an interesting point too, because I think in, in many other locations, you'll run into this uh, phenomena where people are just very, very guarded about um, opportunities. There's definitely a mindset of scarcity where Uh, I might know someone who I think you should talk to, but I'm going to hold back that intro and just be weird about it until, (laughs) you know, you introduce me or make like a sale or something like that. And um, that type of uh, barrier to entry is, uh, it's palpable in other Mm -hmm. markets. And Mm -hmm. I I come from DC and uh, a lot of folks, definition of entrepreneurship there is government contracts, more government contracts, but we'll call it, we'll call it innovation. And (laughs) um, it's, that's fine, but it's like, you're a great contractor. You're not necessarily building anything new, which is fine. Um, and we need different markets like that doing different things but what's going on out here is just is very very different so I was hoping to um, maybe share some uh, stories about you know your early days early companies mm-hmm. uh, maybe big breaks that either yeah. of you caught um, especially the breaks that you might not have necessarily been ready for those are always <laughs> the, the best stories um, yeah. so yeah I would love to take it back to maybe your first company sure. or a first investment that really took off yeah
2: um, feel free to yeah. Take it away. Great. So yeah, uh, maybe I'll, yeah, I'll chat through company and then kind of my, my space and venture um, and kind of share those two stories. And then, sure. you know, hear from John, we'll be, go back and forth. I'm sure we'll have lots, lots and lots of stories. So, <laughs> Do it. Um, you know, with Retargeter in the early days, you know, we bootstrapped the company and and the company was focused on providing, you know, display retargeting um, to initially small to medium sized businesses. And that's kind of how we got our start and focused on that particular segment, but I think what happened over time which was really interesting is that we started to look at the market and say, well, we we started by focusing on this wedge which is just retargeting for SMBs and it was $500 a month and it was relatively simple. But over time kind of, you know, listening to the market and having some amazing uh, folks on the team that were doing that in a very savvy way, started to recognize, hey, there's more opportunity here. Let's get people to think differently about, you know, our advertising and marketing as a whole. Let's kind of think about this mid-funnel as a as a whole new place to play. Um, and that started to then, you know, lead to a lot of rapid innovation. So we started with something that was getting a lot of traction, but then decided let's keep taking that and let's build on that and create, you know, little kind of micro products or in some case macro products that built off the foundation of that. And that ultimately led to the interest of the advertising agency world. And that's where we got a lot of our big breaks. And I think what we focused on was educating the market and showing them kind of what was possible with this new technology. Right. and that led to some really kind of unique uh, situations where we started working with very large advertising agencies and and being able to, uh, you know, have you know, seven-figure, six-figure contracts um, with these agencies, not only to kind of do the core retargeting stuff, but also to kind of be their eyes and ears on innovation, and in some cases just create stuff, um, you know, in some ways with them. Right. Um, and so I think the the break there was this understanding that it is incredibly important to be narrowly focused and be absolutely operationally efficient and execute hard, but not to necessarily lose the uh, the the general awareness in the ecosystem. And that is, I think, an, that created opportunities right. um, by having that awareness. And so there were people on the team and and myself and others running around that allowed that to happen. So that was a that was just a cool you know experience <laughs> to yeah. see that play out and and see that kind of hyper growth curve hit. The other thing that was an interesting thing that I, yeah, I wouldn't say I fell into per se, but it just kind of was a unique series of events. So I'd become an LP and fund one of 500 startups and was not really actively investing and, but just, you know, saw what I thought was something early around seed funds and this idea of investing early and engaging in this universe of uh, startups that were being created back in kind of 2009, 2010. So Became an LP, got involved with 500. Then as I was operating my company, you know, started to advise and mentor and and try and share my knowledge and and things that I had learned um, and started doing that with 500 companies because I had kind of an affiliation there. And that, that LP check was very random. (laughs) You know, it was not something that was on my map at all. Ended up talking to somebody. He's like, Hey, we're starting a fund. I was like, what's a fund? How does one become a part of this? What are you looking for? Oh, you're taking small checks. Okay. I can do that. Um, And that all kind of worked out. And so that story began in 2009 and eventually, you know, ended up becoming a partner at 500 Startups because I had built those, you know, relationships over time with the portfolio companies and with the fund and attending LP meetings. So that was a, it was a lucky break to be able to write that check. And that ultimately led to me being a partner there and then having this incredible experience, you know, all over the world supporting the global startup innovation ecosystem. And then within the 500 story had the responsibility ultimately of raising capital for the fund, um, which again, kind of, you know, we'll spare you the internals, but kind of ended up taking on that role. And, and the, you know, um, we kind of decided that, that was a good place for me to hang out and it was, it was great. And so ended up kind of interfacing with the LP community and the global um, pools of capital that were interested in innovation. And I would call that, you know, really interesting break that, I was able to have that seat, uh, which is typically reserved for folks who have been in the ecosystem for 20, 30 years. Sure. Um, and uh, to have, be able to interface with the LP community. So that was a phenomenal experience. And, you know, got to do everything from hang out in the prime minister's office in Dubai to go to boardrooms in Tokyo and, you know, the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Paris and and really understand things in a more macro level in terms of how capital gets funneled into funds and then how that ultimately makes its way down to startups. And, and understanding the... Uh, you know the history of that capital and and how it flows. So that was uh, you know a fascinating experience. And now having taken that, we get to do all the fun stuff that John and I get to do. So uh, <laughs> and that wouldn't have happened had I not had that very cool. uh, had that experience. So those are a couple of stories that come to mind. And
1: uh, yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah. And I think it you know talking about sovereign wealth funds and the macro environment is very interesting because I, I remember when I first discovered them. The, uh, the Oxford Handbook is floating around somewhere on the shelf mm, nice. of uh, sovereign wealth funds. But it's almost like this whole new vista opens up about what's possible, how things get created. And it's um, in a world that's prone to conspiracy theories. It's <laughs> so fun to actually learn what's going on yeah. because yeah. You, you encounter a book like the Oxford hand, Handbook for Sovereign Wealth Funds, and you can learn about it. And it's, it's, uh, it's available for yep. a low price. Nothing, right. there really isn't too much of a barrier to entry other than like doing the work, showing up, figuring yep. it out. And uh, it's very exciting, though, when you consider how much capital right now is sitting on the sidelines or that's getting, uh, you know, substandard returns. And um, sovereign wealth funds typically, if I get this right, typically invest in large infrastructure projects and, you know, very large things, large funds. Where is that environment at right now? And I'd be curious to know, uh, do you see that environment um, warming up to the idea of technology investments or is it still primarily focused on infrastructure investments and things of that nature.
2: No, it's certainly warming up. And I think that's what is incredibly exciting that that uh, pool of capital is, you know, waking up, so to speak, to this opportunity. And I think that's really, really intriguing. So typically, yes, it has been infrastructure projects. And I think some of the other things at a macro level that are happening, you know, Japan has negative interest rates. This is happening in certain parts in Europe as well. So if your your money is sitting there, it is literally losing value (laughs) over time. So you've got to put it to work. Um, And I think that's now uh, you know, kind of galvanizing folks to look outside of other traditional places to say, okay, where are we seeing return? What is possible? Um, and that I personally think is very exciting to help be a small part of educating, you know, those folks around, Hey, how do you, how do you play in this ecosystem in the right way? How do you do it in a way that you're working with the right folks, values aligned folks who, who also understand how to think long-term because sovereign wealth funds by definition are very, Long term minded entities, whereas, you know, if you look at a startup, they might be worried about making payroll next month. (laughs) So how do you translate between those two very different frames? Sure. um, You know, becomes an important exercise. So as sovereign wealth funds and other large pools of capital have to figure that out, they'll need, you know, folks to help make sure that they do that the right way. But the trend is shifting um, in this direction. And they're starting to, I've even seen, not necessarily sovereign wealth funds, but other very large pools of capital look to write direct checks into companies sure, um, as well, versus even writing LP checks into funds. So it's a very interesting time. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, it feels, so, it, it
1: feels yeah. that way. Um, definitely. So John, I would be curious to know any uh, stories you can share from either the early days or even something, you know, recently, any, any type of uh, breakthroughs, whether they're personal or professional?
3: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, like some people have like the big breaks, you know, and they can mark it out as like huge milestones in their life. I think for me, it's just been uh, uh, one after another subtle and has been building and been generative in my life. Sure. Uh, I think the, I mean, the main thing I probably want to share is that uh, probably when people ask me, you know, uh, what's, you know, what's your superhuman skill or your super talent? I think for me, and I haven't really deconstructed it, I've literally always been fortunate enough to... to know who to learn from, from day one, regardless of what I chose, whether it was martial arts, whether it was, you know, a subject matter at, in college or whether it was personal development, whether it's communication. And subsequently, that's also meant that uh, they they instilled in me a lot of first principles thinking, mm-hmm. which I could uh, uh, recontextualize uh, regardless of how the times are changing. And that's one benefit. But the other benefit is that um, I haven't had to learn things. And Literally, I've just trusted with mentors in my life, and I can I can name so many. My taekwondo instructor, like kind of t- teaching me to uh, that. Hey, perhaps like all the things that you aren't happy about in your life, there's one common denominator in those occurrences, and that's the presence of you, and that's empowering, freaky at the same time. Um, and then you know, down the track, you know, managers at work uh, who recognize that hey, I could do uh, good stuff mm-hmm. if I kept going where I was in the company but they would say, you know what, you should leave because I think your potential, it outlives this context. Mm-hmm. And like, initially it's hard to take, but they really saw something in me. I hadn't recognized myself yet. And then, you know, other people who've like given me breaks And you know, when I first uh, left my job and I started doing like kind of copywriting projects and ghostwriting projects, like literally someone took a gamble with me to write their first book and did really well, referred to whole networks to me and and within that, they also continue to encourage me to get, you know, facilitation certification or they would pay for it. And they would say, you, you, do, you do this really well. And so I've always had, I guess, like hidden like hand, energetic hands pushing me and you me on. And I think that's something I'm eternally grateful for. I don't know how I'd reproduce and uh, make it a product, it's value. but <laughs> yeah, um, I'm 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 starting one person at a time, and um, I think that's and really that's how it's led me to Arjun. Really, I've never, um, I just I I can spot the values aligned people, and I just don't question it. Yeah. Sure,
1: and uh, one of the things you mentioned there, I think, is fascinating, is that mindset of uh, the mentor that I'm working with is the perfect mentor, and this is the perfect time, and I can you know capitalize on these opportunities. And that's so refreshing to hear because often people forget that uh, maybe the mentor that is right there and the opportunity that's at hand is the the best one. Mm-hmm. Like it's the only one that you have there right now. And uh, you might as well treat it that way. You might as well, you know, put your trust, put in the daily work um, because there's a lot of conversation online about like finding the mentor, but there isn't a lot about like helping your mentor or, <laughs> uh, you know, mm-hmm. any, anything along those lines. So that type of mindset about, you know, being coachable and um, being open to, you know, knowledge that you don't have, I do think that there's kind of like a lack of that uh, right right now where people are, they might show up, they might say that they're willing to learn, but actually putting those things in practice or, you know, taking hard advice and leaving a company, not so easy to yeah. put into practice. Right. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about, you know, recent things that you're up to, if you can share any details about, mm-hmm. you know, what your day-to-day is like or sure. what which, which you're up to. Uh, I think that would be fun to kind of like go behind the scenes uh, Mm -hmm. from an emerging holding company fund and uh, let you take it away.
2: Yeah, 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 great. So, yeah, talk through some of the, you know, entities that we're involved with and some of the things that we're up to. So, um, you know, in residence at Expa and supporting, you know, being supportive there and supporting some of the companies that are in the studio there and burgeoning and growing. And that's a lot of fun. So, you know, get to do that with the Omidyar Network. uh, I'm an advisor. Get to support them. More on uh, particular topics, what we're calling now kind of beneficial tech and, um, you know, supporting companies that are looking at data privacy um, and. Uh, kind of user behavior online in new and innovative ways that respect the user, and I think that's another really interesting thread to get to pull and look for companies there, and then continue to refine that thesis so it gets tighter and tighter. Um, with Nike, you know, fortunate to sit on the investment committee for Nike's internal innovation efforts um, called Valiant Labs, and get to you know support them as they uh, create um, new companies inside of Nike. The House Fund, which is U C Berkeley's venture fund. So the House Fund supports founders who are coming out either, you know, student or alum of U C Berkeley and seen some tremendously companies there, Superhuman, Flexport, and others that are kind of in that portfolio uh, and get to be, you know, supportive of them and and that next generation companies like Parade and Hinge2 and others that are coming up, um, you know, out of the campus, which is really, really cool. And having obviously been an alum there, it's great to be able to be supportive in that way. We're also working with a handful of companies, uh, supporting them in kind of a combination of the leadership coaching and the communications and change work that John uh, has been chatting about coupled with kind of just operational um, support and and network support. So helping people plug into various networks and then also, you know, just tactically, Oh, I need to, I need to get my Salesforce set up and uh, you know, what are the best <laughs> practices for that and who should I talk to and sure. how do we make sure we're hiring the right salespeople? Right. So, so being both highly tactical and tangible about how we're supporting those founders and then also focusing on those first principle kind of core belief system areas as well. So really looking for the highest leverage possible (laughs) for those founders. So hopefully you spend time, you know, with us and then we can help you not only the practical things, but also on the core things that will change ideally the direction of the company well into the future. So that, and then with the family offices and the other kind of large pools of capital for them, it's more around helping them understand the ecosystem, look for opportunities define their own thesis and their own approach. So a lot of it is, hey, we want to play in this global innovation ecosystem, but how do we let people know how we want to play? Um, because if you don't do that well- You don't have boundaries. You, you don't, don't have boundaries. People don't know what you're doing. You. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I don't know. Do I send them series F deals? <laughs> do they want to look at crypto pre-seed startups? I don't know. But like sure. helping them kind of really define that and then navigate the ecosystem after they've done that definition work. Um, and a day-to-day is a ton of context switching. So you know, John and I will have- a meeting with a, you know, $10 billion entity in one minute and then switch and chat chat with a pre-seed founder about, you know, hire their first you know, uh, engineer or something like that. So it's this incredible opportunity to uh, have a lot of different contexts in any given day which makes it a ton of fun but also appreciate that that's not for everybody. Yeah, uh, right. it can be right. pretty intense. An acquired taste. <laughs> yeah, for, very very sure. so.
1: So, yeah, John, what's your day-to-day yeah, so like? Are you still to, practicing uh, taekwondo or uh, You
3: know, yeah, at the moment it's just more self-practice, but uh, what I've substituted for is compulsive obsessive compulsive surfing at <laughs> uh, you know, whenever I get the chance, and uh, I think that's kind of my meditation. Uh, but um, to to kind of piggyback off what Arjun's saying, yeah. So I join Arjun for a lot of calls with uh, emerging fund managers and uh, founders, and just offering kind of my kind of value add in the context of uh, what Arjun does tactically and strategically with his networks. Um, but so about forty to. 40 60 percent of my time is taking care of doing that and we you know we we're, good, we're doing like you know quarterly offsites for some founders and their executive teams to kind of teach them the basic generative skills to really rapidly scale trust alignment and uh, better communication amongst uh, key stakeholders uh, but the other 50 percent time which I'm super excited about which I love doing internally with Arjun is really looking at our mission which is how do we strengthen the trust and connectivity between values-aligned stewards of capital and values-aligned founders? And actually looking at our network infrastructure, um, using tech a bit, you know, affinity.co, uh, which is a relationships intelligence system. You can plug, yeah, we can plug them. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, definitely. I hope uh, the uh, yeah. Yeah, they're away. listening. I hope they're listening. <laughs> yeah. the, um, and actually, uh, two things. Uh, what, one of the things I'm good at is kind of taking uh, um, snippets of people's uh, communication patterns and reverse engineering what their likely strengths and tendencies are like and doing some people diligence on that. And then together, Arjun and I have a frequent cadence where instead of just letting uh, networks grow organically, which is beautiful, and I think that's one of the greatest ways they do grow, Mm -hmm. and rather than just taking like passive response to inbound request connections, right, or people who are asking us for help, is looking at this uh, relationship data, right, and actually uh, asking ourselves, hey, how can we actively and thoughtfully stimulate potentially net positive connections? Because I think, if uh, to your effect, with network effects, one of the things that uh, makes a network really powerful is not just the size, but the density, right? Mm-hmm. It's the cross-linking, which is funny because that kind of maps over the brain, right? And the other part of that internal talent that spend on is, okay, great, part of adding value to them is um, producing, like, long-form, thoughtful content that could be useful to our stakeholders. For example, uh, I think you read the recent one that uh, Arjun and mm-hmm. Y helped kind of codified by like pulling out of Arjun's brain yeah Ian Ian sent sent it over to me yeah which was about like fundraising right Uh, let's uh let's give early stage or first time founders um uh like a pathway they can um execute on you know give them some context that they otherwise would have to learn the hard way Mm -hmm. right because they're so action oriented if you just Mm -hmm. give them the right thing if you just give them roadmap they'll learn they might and good founders will do it sloppily but it'll be effective You know, and they'll learn from it. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect first time. And then one of the posts that's kind of literally just codified today um, uh, is due for just a final review by Arjun is uh, what are the must-haves and must-dos of first-time emerging managers? Let's map out that roadway for... Uh, let's map out that path for them so they know what they're getting into, right? And, uh, you know, how to clarify your vision, how to clarify your thesis, and how to uh, re- reinforce your thesis with your personal narrative as well, right? Sure. Um, and and really, like, I debunking, I suppose, the myths... Yeah and the romance Mm -hmm. about (laughs) getting involved in venture. Everyone wants to be a VC right now. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) because I don't think life is predicated on hard work, but certain pathways do require a lot of groundwork. There's no denying that (laughs) mm -hmm. startup founders will be at the borderline of uh, <laughs> exhaustion mm-hmm. and burnout, sure. right? And I think it's the same thing the first time imaging mentioned fun. So we're codifying that and kind of gifting that forward to ecosystem and giving whoever we believe is doing a good job a, a nice plug in that because it's always net positive, you know, especially in the Silicon Valley uh, mm-hmm. ecosystem where word travels faster than the speed of thought right? Why don't we leverage them? That Why don't we give valuable thought to the mm-hmm. ecosystem? Right. There's arguments around whether it should be long form or short form. But I think if you do it thoughtfully for the right audience and you're meeting a, a need, uh, they'll read it, right? Like, I, I mean, hypothetically, if you could give birth to your own child, right? First time, you know raising a child like you'll probably read every page even if it's a thousand words sure as long as it's relevant to you so, <laughs> so i get so i think that's what we're doing we're just going back okay there's uh, heuristics or like rules of thumbs around content and uh, how to be valuable in the network but we kind of set those aside first and go back to first principles is this valuable to someone yeah and if that means an essay sure if yeah. that means a tweet Sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, cuz if you get the value part right, uh the length there's a lot of new data about podcasts that shows after the 3 hour mark, uh retention actually can increase uh depending on what the show is, but there's no surprise though that at the courts all about the value. Right. and guys. And, and to your point, yeah. for
3: example, the podcast you did with Camille Ricketts, right? Yeah. I found that intriguing. I listened yeah. the whole time. I, in fact, I didn't do one of the activities I thought I'd do that <laughs> because I got super pulled into it.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, I think that that relevance and value add is just amazing. And I think if it comes from someone you trust, yes. it's even more important. So
1: important. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think topics like that and folks like that who have just such a stellar track record in uh, Camille's case, and, you know, many of our, other guests. Um, it's exciting to profile them and get them to share their stories because often these stories or this wisdom is something they're thinking about putting mm-hmm. into a book down the road right. or something like that. Uh, so for a lot of this, it's um, happening at the speed of business where there are practitioners on the front line like you two who are doing work every day. They get to take a break and share all of that right away. Um, and, and that type of uh, information isn't always priced into the market because oftentimes mm-hmm. we can take for granted uh, that you know what we learn today might be applicable to a million founders, right? And it's just a matter of putting it into the media and then getting it out out there. Yeah. So um, let's kind of transition a little bit uh, to talk about maybe some of our inspirations, whether they be books or people or um, favorite movies. It could really be anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious to know, are there any books that you two continually refer to or, um, uh, maybe <laughs> I'll
2: let John start on oh, any, yeah, uh, <laughs> any books that you, uh, reread? Yeah. Yeah. That's always sure. a fun one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Too. No, oh, I, I, wow. yeah. Um, I would say we're both voracious readers and I think, uh, always looking at <laughs> so many different books. Um, it's hard. I think there's some things that are very esoteric. So I'll, I'll, I'll share a bit about my kind of reading history. So I started in, uh, um, you know, initially, you know, dug in on on a lot of books around, let's call it, emotional intelligence, power, um, understanding how people operate, um, and then have gone down a pretty, I'd call it, esoteric path of looking at comparative religion and and kind of different ways that people get to the kernel of truth. So I've read everything from, you know, books about the Sufis to the Essenes, to Tibetan Buddhism, to pre-rabbinical, you know, Judaism, early Christianity, like all of that stuff um, as a mechanism to understand how do people think about, you know, belief and um, philosophy that ultimately guides and drives their life. Um, so those are all, all of those books have been, and they're, you know, read and reread and re-referenced um, often. And then, you know, as it relates to kind of business books, I Try to go through those pretty quickly, um, and or you know read those summaries, and then try to get back to kind of first principle stuff. So back to kind of psychology, or back to some of this philosophy, or or early kind of religious thinking around how humans work and operate. Um, So that's where a lot of my reading time ends up being focused um, is kind of in and around those topic areas, and then I think also interested in books that highlight kind of how the world works so you had mentioned kind of you know the Oxford and sovereign wealth thing so I've been very fascinated by you know really digging into um, uh, kind of how how people and capital uh, moves across the world so a friend of mine wrote a book called coined on the history of money you know other folks have you know you know, written books on uh, just history so how ideas propagate over time those are books that end up being quite fascinating um, so yeah those are some of the you know, very cool. uh, yeah. But similar to to the room we're sitting in now uh, is surrounded <laughs> by books. And so I, this feels very much at home for me. Yeah. Or... <laughs> everyone should
3: have an opportunity to come visit <laughs>
2: look at all yeah. the books
3: around here. So.
1: Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the esoteric uh, books because, you know, earlier there's always that, uh, or maybe it's just for me, there's always that, um, you know, that kind of voice that says like, don't share the craziest thing you're reading right now. <laughs> like, like keep that one held back. And, um, but I ended up, I, I shared uh, just the, the books, the uh-huh. stack right there with them. Um, dodo uh arthur clark cal newport um renee gerard a uh, book yep. on hardware startups yep. that's what i'm reading at the moment <laughs> i just went ahead and sh- just shared them on the earlier call right, And right. um you know it's no surprise but the person i was talking to they had there was some rapport built and they were like mm-hmm. oh wow that's interesting yeah. and, you know i was kind of hesitant at first to, sure. to René share gerard those. is.
2: i've been actually reading that it's i the medic theory for me has been a you know, deep area of interest for it's, a long time it is so um, fascinating
1: and yeah. <laughs> it, it's definitely something that um As you start to study, uh, whether it's like machine learning or when you get uh, real-world experience that is um, negative around Mm -hmm. large groups of people and crowds, uh, it takes on a whole new meaning. (laughs) Um, Totally. But especially around negative crowds, uh, there's, I I mean, I get chills thinking about it, but I was in the military Mm. um, and there were just different points in times where, um, whether it was in like Iraq, Egypt, or doing security for Obama's first inauguration, Mm. uh, a, a crowd can turn bad instantly uh very very fast fascinating yeah, fascinating. yeah. Fascinating. and uh wow. if, if you want to dive into that more Rene Girard um takes that theory and, and runs with it mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. to the uh, to its conclusions but, right um,
2: uh, scapegoating is yes the, the, for those of you who are interested that's the shortcut where it goes but yeah definitely and uh <laughs> yeah.
1: so john yeah we'd love to hear yeah, something i just want to add there was a book yeah, that
3: came across me years back i never picked it up but it was a really interesting concept. It was, it was called Weapons of Mass Migration and how uh, like the maneuvering of uh, mass populations have been <laughs> used as a weapon mm-hmm. in Definitely. geopolitical environments. And I thought that was really fascinating. It's, a, it's been a standard yeah. tool of many nation states, yeah, unfortunately. A, yeah, yeah. yeah um, uh, which is kind of grim, I guess. It but, is, you know, yeah. No denying the reality. My reading list is as <laughs> esoteric as Arjun's wow. and as pretty grounded. I, I think I read a range of things. Uh, for me, it's just whatever piques my interest at a time. Recently, I've been reading something by Jane Myers called uh, Dark Money, which is uh, the weaponization of philanthropy, mm-hmm. um, which is super dark and it's great. I don't know why I love it so much. Mm-hmm. The, um, <laughs> uh, but then I read super inspirational uh, books, like this one uh, called The Power of One by Bryce Courtney, which I would describe to be like the South African version of Forrest Gump. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's about boy and he, he goes through his human potential journey, but it's written in really grounded terms. It's not written in like es- esoteric abstractions that you'd have to be a poet to understand. And who knows whether you really actually got the message, right? Sure. The, um, <laughs> so uh, that one I recommend everyone read. It's like 600 pages, but, uh, you know, just reading it is is a beautiful testament to the human spirit. And then the other, I mean, the other book that I really like is also some. Uh, Autobiographies like there's a guy called Ed Visters who's, um, who, who's summited all the 8,000 meter plus or 20,000 feet plus uh, mountains in the world, and he's from Seattle and he's he, he did it with unassisted oxygen. Wow. And he's got all his limbs intact last time i checked uh but uh he's got great stuff talking about his relationship with nature how he says you know the uh this journey to summit's optional journey back is uh, mandatory and he also says that he has this relationship with mountains where he says they decide if you go up and just listen Mm. to signal and he's done some amazing things so he's one of my inspirations um there's also uh you know obviously I, i forgot her name fully she's uh swimming to antarctica have you have you read that it's a a lady who's like
1: i haven't i'm already shivering but yeah you (laughs) gotta read that yeah you gotta read that not Uh, for the faint of heart
3: i just read that all in one sitting it was just a beautiful journey of how you know she's literally like has this way of like maintaining a core temperature and swimming in arctic environments and like like swimming against currents where like when the tide changes there's a whirlpool that will literally suck boats in right and she's trying to get to the other side within those windows. This is absolutely amazing. That's and awesome. probably more on the esoteric end, there's a great book I think everyone should read if they can tolerate it. It's called uh, Seth Speaks, uh, The Eternal Validity of the Soul. And I don't, to this day, I don't fully understand it, but it's just interesting because the syntax and structure of the language used to communicate that, to, to read it and try and interpret it, requires a, a changing of the internal brain processes. And so that's given me some weird dreams. I don't (laughs) like.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I I love books that challenge you and uh, make it clear that you know if you've just got the superficial message from the book, there's there's way more to be discovered. So those are a lot of fun. And um, there's a great book uh, called *Persecution and the Art of Writing* or something along those lines by Leo Strauss, which is uh, always a good reminder that many of the uh, most important truths throughout time have had to been uh, you know hidden in fiction or they've Mm, been hidden in. dialogue and things of that nature to, So the author can avoid scapegoating in their life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically. Right. And, um, that I, I like that too, because it, um, helps us see books and authors with fresh eyes where, you know, you never know what somebody is, uh, hesitant to share or what they've tried to hide or what they've, what they're really trying to convey. So that challenge to, you know, think more deeply or, uh, encounter a book and then reread it is, um, I think that's always a, it's a great reminder that there's yeah, it, it, yeah. It, wow. the sea gets deeper as you go and it gets, right. gets really deep.
3: right <laughs> yeah. And also like, I, I find like, regardless of what people might say about what you read, <laughs> like you, like you're always going to be your harshest critic.
1: What about, uh, different formats of media? Any, are you mm. too into movies, podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, video games? Movies, What's, yeah. uh,
2: yeah. All of the above. Yeah. All of, I mean, more kind of yeah, for me personally, it's movies. It's, you know, television, uh, in like, you know, interesting series where they capture like documentary series, things like that. Sure. Um, podcasts certainly. Um, and, uh, I've been intrigued by this new concept of kind of video plus podcast and kind of having that optionality where you can look at the person's face as they're having the conversation, but don't (laughs) need, you know, don't have to do that. Um, So you can have more context if necessary, or you can be driving in your car and listen to it safely, Um, you know, so that uh, Joe Rogan and others obviously do that. Um, So I think that's been an interesting uh, new form of media. And then, you know, uh, Twitter is something that I'm on all the time. I love the ability to kind of quickly snack on, you know, content that can be, pretty heavy or, or pretty light. Sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it, it's a very you know, powerful medium for me. So, um, yeah, very short form videos. Also interesting on Instagram. I think people have done some interesting things with 15 second video clips, um, to convey ideas, messages, feelings. Um, so lots, uh, I'm cool. fascinated by how ideas get into people's, uh, heads through whatever mechanism of their five senses. <laughs>
1: sure. Uh, any uh, favorite series or movies that, um, you've checked out recently
3: oh yeah if you can tolerate it watch hbo succession yeah okay. <laughs> we've been talking about that <laughs> yeah. recently we've been talking yeah. about that i mean mostly uh, uh, based
1: on the murdochs or what was the inspiration like an, a an like, yeah. of like yeah. every yeah. big yeah. media family yeah. Empire.
3: i can neither confirm or disconfirm <laughs> <like, laughs> no but the uh, like i think that that's like uh, it for some reason it, it does a great job of portraying uh People that I'd never want to hang out with, but, <laughs> but, but it, it gives a great insight into a, a certain context and style of operation in the corporate sector. I think we've all had reference experiences for that, historically, and yeah. to see it like come out so well, so well done, and so nuanced, right, is just a breath of fresh air, right and it's super engaging as well because you
2: can see how that plays out right um you can see those archetypes (laughs) you know in other places in life and it gives a good frame of reference to say oh that's an interesting archetype yeah Uh, i've seen that story before yeah
3: (laughs) i think generally speaking on that note i like films that portray uh, that leave a question mark as to whether you can judge a human to be good or bad because the thing is you know when you look at human beings right in one context you might say gosh, they're doing such a brilliant job. In another context, if you judge them on their behavior, you might think, oh, dude, you suck, right? But the truth is, like, you can't actually draw a solid conclusion. We're complex beings, you know? We're neither good or bad. We just happen to be here trying to do the best we can, right? And so I think one of those things that I love is where you have the clear distinction that uh, who, we, uh, who we are inherently Uh, it should be separated from uh, our behavior you Mm. know like uh, just because a behavior is destructive it doesn't necessarily mean your being is i think that's super inspirational for me the other thing i love watching and sometimes amazon prime gets it right they give me something (laughs) that i actually want to watch yeah i hope amazon's listening to this (laughs) they do something about it the um but uh, a documentary uh called the life of hummingbirds by david Attenborough. Hummingbirds are elite freaking athletes, man. Sure, <laughs> they <yeah>. are amazing. <laughs> yeah, because they live this beautiful. Like to 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 fly the way they do, they have to expend so much energy, but they have to expend that much energy to be able to access the nectar they need to sustain it. So they have to do all these complex computations and balance that. And while they're doing it, their heart beats at like I don't know, like 400 BPM or something. Like it's crazy. Sure. And so then they have to spend the entire evening. Um, like settling a heartbeat and they literally go into hibernation every night until the sun rises
1: that's cool i, I definitely want to check that out yeah you that's, should check it out it's, only an hour. Yeah. It's,
3: it's super inspirational and the uh, uh like slow-mo photography is just brilliant it's just super st- stimulating and david Attenborough, you know english accent super therapeutic narration like it's a great way to de stress yeah. after a busy day you know <laughs> yeah definitely english accents are hard to beat <laughs> uh
1: so yeah so i I think um, you know more broadly as uh, we're thinking about like the future of technology and uh, innovation and maybe um, more efficiently allocating capital yeah. around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd be curious to know. Um, you know, are you I- excited about the future of the Bay Area? What mm-hmm. do you what do you see for the future of yeah. the Bay Area? What do you see for the future of America or any? Sure. Uh, maybe any nation state. Um, yeah. yeah. What's your take on everything?
2: Yeah, <laughs> I love the question. Um, so I think for the Bay Area, I think as as we get more reps of building these sort of companies and start to get, you know, wiser about what our responsibility is um, in building these companies that now we are clear have global impact and scale, Um, I think it's going to be more important to continue to be more, you know, value-centered in our approach and be very foundational about, you know, the ethical approach that we're taking and the, you know, the values-driven approach that we're taking in starting these companies. And a large part of that is actually having capital that's aligned to that. Because if capital isn't aligned to that, we've all heard stories of people driving, you know, companies to grow too quickly or, you know, forcing a sale for a founder or kicking a founder out because of the capital they took. I mean, so many of these crazy stories, but as this flow of capital, uh, you know, new flow, let's say enters the market that is more long-term focused, um, is aligned. Um, I think that can actually start to create even more impact than we already have had done as an ecosystem, um, kind of with that uh, wisdom and awareness of, of some more long-term thinking and some more, you know, reps from that way. So I I remain incredibly excited about this ecosystem and, you know, continue to believe that this place will produce more uh, world-changing, you know, companies, but there are more of those happening outside of this area as well. Um, So that is also encouraging and inspiring to me to think about the other places, you know, that I rattled off earlier, starting to see their own startups grow and have an impact and hopefully done you know, with that right foundation, with that right first principle thinking, with the right set of values. Um, so to speak, you know, specifically about the Bay Area in the United States. And I think the Bay Area is as as a reflection of that, in particular as it relates to innovation, I'm incredibly excited. And I'm starting to see early indications of that happening on a global scale as well. Um, which if we have some responsibility here as leading kind of the thought around that, um, we have to take that very seriously. Um, because it, you know, people are copying, oh, this is Silicon Valley startup stuff and they're adapting it. Sure. The ones who are doing it well or adapting it to their own geographies. But a lot of folks are looking to, you know, what we're doing here. And so not to, you know, use the cliche quote, but I'll say it is like with great power comes great responsibility Definitely. and we have to be, you know, cognizant of that. So um, I, I remain optimistic. I remain very excited about, you know, this region, how the rest of the ecosystem plays out, how some of these older industries, some of the more highly extractive approaches to things, you know, play out in the future, I I don't know, those will certainly shift and, and change. And so, you know, we have to be wary of what the ramifications of those might be as those industries start to change and, and shift and uh, adapt. Um, But for the world that we live in, um, or they, you know, that John and I spend a lot of time in, I'm very, very excited. (laughs) And I think I have that responsibility to to do something positive about it.
1: Definitely. And we talked about memetic theory earlier, but just imagine, uh, you know, hypothetically, if individuals learn by copying and many of other individuals' behavior is just unconscious imitation, mm-hmm. it's really important for us if yeah. we're, because the Bay Area is, uh, the second you travel outside, people want to know like what's Silicon Valley doing? Mm-hmm. What are people thinking? What's what the investing so-and-so in? Investing, right. <laughs> investing in? <laughs> yeah. And, um, people are copying it very directly in a, in a lot of other markets. So it's important for us to, uh, kind of set other markets up for success where it's not a scenario where everybody's copying the meme in the wrong way. It's like, you you just don't, (laughs) don't want that. Um, And obviously over time, that'll evolve and hopefully become more unique. And as they, you know, different markets play to their geography and and, and natural resources and things like that. Um, But we tend to copy each other so we always have to be aware of yeah Yeah. you know i want to challenge that a
3: bit i think sure i think you know uh definitely uh leadership by example is great because that's what people copy and and the thing is like whether how someone copies it and how they distort it like we're not responsible for really because we can't control that Mm -hmm. but i think what we can do is focus on this and i think the the meta message you have there um is that you know like, uh, maybe always be pushing the fold to improve or to find new distinctions or new ways of doing things. Sure. Because if you find it useful and it's proven, and you kind of break that barrier, to be the first person to break that barrier, right? Other people will follow. They right. might not do it perfectly, but you've actually extended the choices they have on uh, in their reality. So Definitely. That yeah, blazing a
1: new trail. To, yeah, is, make that yeah.
3: clear distinction. Yeah, because I think I think the thing is like now that like if you take too much responsibility for uh, the things that are going wrong in the world, right? Like you won't sleep. Like, You'll never do anything. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah. it, it's a team yeah. effort. You know? it's yeah. just, it never falls down to one person We're just like one human race doing the best we can, you know? And and yeah. it's, I mean, y- you think about trying to align 10 stakeholders and how much effort that takes, right? There's like over 8 billion people in the world <laughs> trying to align the value systems of 8 billion people, you know? Yeah. And I think it's just, it's just a big will to turn and I think humanity is doing the job. I'm, I'm very optimistic. Um, I I have no idea where I was going with that. No, was an important I distinction. I do, I do, yeah. I do, <laughs> actually, I do. Uh, I think one of the things I'm seeing in the Bay Area, I think, uh, is a door to uh, great opportunities mm-hmm. in terms of leading, uh, leading not just in the region but setting a benchmark for the rest of the world. Is I'm seeing great funds like True Ventures, right? The True Ventures team uh, actively um, talk about the value of empathy mm-hmm. and uh, emotional intelligence, and actually, like building it into the DNA of the thesis. And, uh, and I'm seeing a lot of funds, like, you know, your foundry groups, your Brad Felds, and talk about the value of um, taking care of mental health, whether mm-hmm. you're emerging fund or whether you're a founder, right? So I think there's this, like, there's this whole uh, consciousness is coming into this value of that. Number one, emotions aren't a threat. Mm-hmm. They're not a dangerous thing it's actually a good thing to have emotions. And mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> That's Right. That's right, definitely. Yeah. Um, and it's not, you know, and, and you know, some people who are resistant to it might call it touchy feely, but really it's actually, it is touchy feely. Sure, It's being touchy feeling with your humanity. It's what makes us human. And I think number two that I'm seeing is that, you know, there's an increasing stress uh, amongst what, uh, when, venture, when venture funds vet their founders, they're looking for cues for self-awareness, right? I think there's an opportunity to go deeper so I always ask, like, what specifically about yourself would you like to be aware of? Let's break that down. Because if you just say, hey, you should just build your self-awareness. No one knows what that means. Right. So I think some dialogue needs to happen around what self-awareness is. Because every time we, I, is it that is self-awareness, like how you behave well or not so well in a specific context, right? And then bringing awareness to that and kind of building from there. Because that process of actually chunking down what self-awareness means can start to be generalized across multiple facets of your life. But if you just chuck, like, self-awareness out, people are like, oh, what's that mean? Like, oh, yeah, look, like, I look in the mirror all day and just notice when my eyebrows flip. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, are, right? Yeah, like, definitely. we don't know what that actually means. So I'm curious to find out what self-awareness means for different people in the ecosystem and uh, how to codify kind of uh, um, a deeper path. To explore that and not to be obsessive compulsive about it because you could spin your circles all day trying to figure out who you are and the other direction that i think uh, is happening uh, globally and i think it's just going to accelerate is uh this field of meta learning right because information is so ubiquitous these mm-hmm. days across uh, yeah. almost mm-hmm. all demographics right so it's not that we need to know how to like memorize stuff better because it's all accessible we shouldn't know how to access it but the other thing is how do you filter what's useful and not right mm-hmm. i think that's where meta learning can come in when if people learn how they learn they can learn anything they want i think this comes back this kind of circles back around to self awareness right sure how do you start bringing uh, acute awareness into your learning style without judgment without uh, expecting you to be something you're not right and right. maybe you can one day right if that's so what you want, right? Anyone can learn anything, but kind of working with your natural talents to develop passive least resistance, mm-hmm. the proper expression, because you can replicate that in your not so strong areas later. I think that's what uh the uh you know, the polymaths of uh mm-hmm. the Renaissance did well, right? They started mastering one craft and they uh reproduced that, uh that capability, uh cross discipline. And they did it sure. without Wi Fi, mm-hmm. candlelight, mm-hmm. <laughs> like same amount of time we had these days. Yeah. And probably, I mean, I I guess they had organic food by nature, right? Like, yeah. Okay. They had a plus on us, you know, organic wine, organic food. Yeah, I get it, but yeah.
1: So yeah, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, we're approaching a hard stop here. I was hoping that, um, each of you could kind of leave our listeners with, uh, one final thought or a call to action, whether it's a challenge or, uh, whether it's something that you reflect on from time to time. Um, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah, um, I think, you know, for me, it's really about the ability to continue to learn, to continue to learn about yourself um, and to be curious
3: uh, is what I would say. Uh, I second that. I copy him. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I love it. For everyone listening, thanks so much. And uh, a lot of the stuff that we mentioned, you can find in the show notes. We'll be sure to link up as much as possible. And for everyone listening, we'll see you next time.